Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sadudicato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what steps we can take to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm talking about food as a metaphor, implicit weight bias and mental health, the unconscious functions of weight gain, and the conscious realities of being in a fat body in modern times. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. So in this episode, I'm going to be touching upon a few different things as they relate to the body. That's going to include body shaming and implicit weight bias, especially as it appears within the community of mental health professionals and the unconscious functions of gaining weight. In the last couple of episodes, I I spoke about why that may actually be um, a helpful tool for somebody, whether they're conscious of it or not. And I think that always sort of makes people a little confused because aren't we obsessed with thinness? Aren't we supposed to be smaller and smaller and smaller? Why would anybody find a benefit in gaining weight? And I think it's important that we start having that conversation. So we'll start having it today. (laughs) So I don't think that it's shocking news to anybody listening that we have a fat shaming issue uh, in our human culture, I would say. While I was doing research um, for various writing projects that I was working on related to this, I found some uh, information from Aldous Huxley, who's an author and philosopher, Um, primarily his works came out in the 20s and 30s and maybe in the 40s. Um, And he he did write a little bit on addiction, specifically substance and sex addiction. Um, But what I thought was so interesting about his perspective was he looked at how societies tend to respond to that sort of thing. Like the voice that rises up from the culture against people who are struggling with addiction. And he refers to them as the moralists and legislators who feel that they have to preserve the overall wellness of a society by shaming and disregarding and disowning those who are in their mind, not creating the right contributions to the culture. So in other words, these folks, these moralists and legislators, these shamers, they take some sort of a vigilante approach for the sake of the whole to excommunicate those people who are perceived as the weakest link. The premise from which they operate is that If substance and sex addiction became more pervasive and impacted more people overall as a culture, our growth would slow down, our economic strength would weaken, our military strength would weaken, everything that has basically made us a more advanced civilization would start to crumble. And so the approach that they take to stop that, because it is a fear-based mentality, is to shame and attack and disregard anybody who doesn't fit the degree of productivity and participation that they believe is effective in maintaining the status quo of the culture. And it's an interesting perspective, and in some ways it makes sense. But I think that there are probably some flaws in that thinking. For one thing, it's it's sort of a self-righteous approach, right? I think of the movie or the franchise Saw. I only saw the first movie, but 
and, and there are other movies like that, but it just always strikes me when there's like one person who deems themselves to be the the one who's figured it all out and so they take on a role of like a higher power to literally eliminate those that they think are wrong that's powerful you know like i have opinion sure but i'm not trying to eradicate different points of views or behaviors this is also an inherently masculine ideology because it's overvaluing productivity over emotional wellness it's not taking into account that it might be all right if our technological advancements slowed down over time if that meant that we were being full human in our capacity to have empathy and care for one another, why is our technological advancement more important than our emotional, mental, and spiritual advancements as a human race that's capable of a lot of depth that we don't give ourselves credit for or our ability to explore? Another issue with it is that it doesn't work. It doesn't create the desired effect not really it might get rid of the problem in a sense that you know if you shun people who are struggling with addiction especially people who end up in homeless situations because of their addiction you know these are people that when we walk by them or drive by them we oftentimes don't even make eye contact with them we don't I mean we don't make eye contact with most people when we're out and about in our day but once we have demeaned somebody along this mentality that, oh, they're addicted or they're homeless or whatever, they are now typically seen as being one down on the human scale and therefore we can treat them a little bit differently. But essentially that just creates more problems. It perpetuates the struggles of those who may be suffering because when you're suffering, isolation is the last thing that you need. So instead of working toward healing or inclusion, these moralists and legislators, they take the shame approach, they take a rejection approach, and that only increases the problem. And I say this because I think it's important to talk about, but I also think that that's where people are coming from, in part, when they body shame. People say, well, I just want you to be healthy. And I don't buy that. I don't believe that. Because, first of all, weight doesn't indicate health. And even if it did, why is it that people only care about other people's health and their business and what they're doing to maintain their health when it comes to weight, when it's an overweight person. It's a strange phenomenon where I think we've convinced ourselves that our, our bullying is for a greater good and therefore it's justified. That our cruel behavior is okay because we're trying to do good. And what I think is important to notice about Huxley's perspective about these moralists and legislators is that he says they suffer from crowd delirium. It's sort of the hive mind taking over. And when you're suffering from crowd delirium, you behave in a way that is actually more dangerous than the people that you are trying to quiet or make disappear. So in other words, the way that they're behaving in order to preserve their society is the actual problem, perhaps we could say, because if you compare them, succumbing to an addiction is actually far less fatal to a society than those who demean others. Because in the former, there's an individual suffering from pain, from a personal struggle, an emotional struggle that they don't have the tools to handle. In the latter, you have a blatant assault on the foundations of our humanity, which is empathy, respect, and dignity. People are actively going out of their way to treat people without empathy, respect, and dignity. That's more of a conscious choice. 
and therefore is a more dangerous approach, right? It could be argued, though, that those who are casting this judgment, those who are doing the shaming, are suffering from their own personal struggle and pain. And so instead of self-sabotaging like an addict tends to, they project that outward and they bully other people. And so the behaviors may manifest differently, but they may be sourced from similar pain. I don't know, right? These are general statements and curiosities, but that could be what's happening. And while bullying should not, it shouldn't be condoned, I think having empathy for the bully is as worthwhile as having empathy for the addict. So imagine what we could do if we applied a little bit more empathy. This always leads me to my favorite quote from Carl Jung. He says, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. And I use this quote often with with all of my clients because we are very quick to be outraged by other people. We are very quick to be irritated and angered and frustrated by other people. And it isn't to say that other people don't do things that frustrate us, but your reaction to it, especially if it's disproportionate to what's going on or not helpful to what's going on, uh, is is likely coming from something within you where you're either seeing yourself in that person, you're seeing some part of yourself that you hate within that person, or you're fearing something that you see in that person. I have always wondered if, if part of the reason people are so fat phobic is because they know that it could just, it doesn't take much to gain weight, especially based on society's judgments of what a person is supposed to look like, especially a woman. You know, we live in diet culture, which has less and less and less and less. Disappear, disappear, disappear. And so there are women, there are people, but there are especially women who are actively starving themselves every day. They are in a restrictive pattern all the time. And they overwork out or they purge or they do some compensatory weight loss behaviors to maintain a weight that is acceptable by society. And they deprive themselves of basic food, but also food that is tempting to them, which we have a plenty of in this country, in America. We we fetishize food, right? We love decorating our food and romanticizing our food and putting bacon on things and having chocolate drizzle on things. And there's so much out there that is appealing to us on an emotional level. And anybody who's depriving themselves is not only depriving themselves of basic nourishment, but they're also depriving themselves of that excitement and that fun and that pleasure that we can get from food. And I believe that we should be able to get pleasure from food the same way we get pleasure from sex. Both of those things are basic needs that we have. And also, we don't only have sex to procreate. We don't only use it for the function that the the primitive function that we know it to have. Therefore, food can also be something that nourishes us, yes, and that we also have fun with and play with. But we've got a culture of people who are not allowing themselves to do that at all, because they are trying to maintain unrealistic expectations of what their bodies are supposed to look like, especially women who are have given birth or women who are getting older and their hormones are changing. I mean, there's natural stuff that makes us gain weight, but we are so on the deprivation side that I think people are so fearful of losing their ability to self-control in the face of temptation that all it takes is a couple of brownies and they're going to feel, even if they're not fat, they're going to feel fat and therefore their entire self-esteem is going to come crumbling down because that's the sort of pressure that we've put on weight is that if I am not thin, I am not worthy. 
And so I think when people body shame, it's coming from this frantic fear that they're holding on to, which is to say that it wouldn't take very much for them to become what they despise, what they have spent their entire life trying not to be. But I think sometimes it can be really shocking. You know, the internet has given us a portal into people's minds. And what I've seen over the last couple of years, you know, internet comments are not necessarily known for being sophisticated and heartwarming. I get it, you know. Um, but I've still been shocked sometimes to observe the degree of anger and outrage that is laced in fat phobic comments. These are not anonymous people either. These are not, you know, people hiding behind a name or a profile picture. These are actual comments left publicly under what's, what are seemingly real names on the internet. They're not hard to come by and they're not simply trolls. These are people that truly hold an outraged opinion and proudly, they're proud of it about the way other people look and live. And it's confusing at face value. But I think when we factor in unconscious messaging, it can start to make sense. And unconscious messaging leads us to this idea of implicit weight bias. So there was a New York Times article that came out a couple of months ago, maybe even longer than that. Um, and it offered this psychological outline of something called implicit weight bias. And noticing, I think one of the most jarring things about it was that it noted how Implicit weight bias can be developed as early as age three. It's more commonly developed between ages nine and 11. And this implicit weight bias is a result of cultural ideas of slimness, also familial hangups about weight. So if a parent struggles with their relationship to their body, if they're handling concerns about their weight or their child's weight or their food consumption with anxiety or judgment, then the child might start to absorb a fear fearful message that being fat is bad, which can then develop into the unconscious belief that fat people are bad and therefore worthy of shame and attacks. This unconscious belief can also fuel fear of one's own fallibility in the face of fatness. So again, what I was saying before, like a reminder of everybody's susceptibility to becoming fat themselves. So if, if we are modeling for our kids, for our younger people that, oh my God, look at this little extra role that I have here, or I can't eat that because I'm trying to fit into this dress or, oh my God, I gained three pounds and now I need to stop eating altogether. If there's anxiety and judgment around that behavior, kids are going to pick that up and they are not going to have enough context for it to say, well, that's not the right way to handle that. Or that's not fair because, you know, bodies grow sometimes, they change sometimes. So the extra three pounds, like let it go, right? A kid's not going to see that and know how to handle that. They're going to absorb that message and think that's reality. That, oh my God, if I gain three pounds, it's the end of the world and I have to starve myself in order to fix this. So when they see fat people, they're going to have judgments about, well, why didn't you fix it? And so it's important to say that this study shouldn't be confused for condemnation, right? trying to instill values of health in your children, that's typically you, you know, acting on the best intentions and doing the right thing. It's when you conflate the two, when you start to make health and weight the same thing, because they aren't. And when you start to moralize weight at all and hyper-focus on getting down to the slimmest version of yourself possible in order to feel worthy. And the phrase implicit suggests that these phobias and prejudices are not typically conscious, right? So the idea is, let's talk about them, let's make them conscious, because they're maybe always going to be there in an unconscious way. But if we can start to track them and say, Oh, there's that weight bias that I'm trying to avoid. Let me make a conscious choice 
to do the opposite of what my instinct is right now, because my instinct is based on a faulty narrative and fear. So health is not about what a body should or shouldn't look like. It's not about training our eyes or conforming to social norms. It's about individual health needs, which vary from person to person in a nuanced way. And especially for younger kids, making these distinctions between health and weight and all that, it's critical that they're developing minds in the unconscious messaging that they received. So I want to be clear that not everybody who's fat is ashamed of their body or needs help or is struggling or is in pain. Not everybody who is fat is unhealthy. So when I speak of the shame of fat people, um, I'm acknowledging and I ask you to do the same that not all people who are in fat bodies or larger bodies are suffering or in need of healing. And I say that because these nuances are widely deemed unimportant by those moralists and legislators in the crusade against fatness. So let's embrace them here in this conversation because they're important. And the truth is, is that there are many, many, many people, many, 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 many people, more people than you even realize. I'm learning this because once I started The Hungry Feminine and started putting my stories out there and my you know research out there, I started hearing from people that I never expected to hear from who almost in a sigh of relief were like, oh my God, thank God you're talking about this because I've struggled with this my whole life. There are many people, fat, skinny, or otherwise, who feel ashamed of their bodies and any little minor imperfection that they have or their size or their height or however they fit in or whatever messaging they received about their worth based on what their human packaging looks like. And for those people, for whoever is ashamed of their body, it can be painful to be seen at all right? Because now we're wearing the thing that we're ashamed of. So everybody can see it. So that's already tough as it is, but it's even tougher to be seen by people who are ready and willing to scrutinize and blame and demoralize you. And there's this common misconception that not shaming fat people is somehow enabling them to remain fat. But I, I, I pose the question, is shaming an actual means of recovery for those who seek it? Or what else is going on there? So personally and professionally, I haven't ever encountered a human being who wasn't holding on to something that they weren't proud of. You know, I think everybody engages in behavior that just allow them to survive another day, be they healthy or not, shameful or painful. And I think people with eating disorders, especially, wear their shame on the outside, which a lot of times gives other people the illusion that they have the right to an opinion about it. But think about this for a minute, because if if what I'm saying is true, that everybody is holding on to pain and shame of some sort and might be acting outside of their values or outside of their desires in order to quell that shame and that pain, or that even if you're not doing that right now, you probably have at some point in your life. So imagine that your deepest, darkest shame was displayed on your very body, that it wasn't something that you could hide, and that you had the court of public opinion thinking that they had the right to leave commentary on every move that you make because it's visible, simply because it can be seen. And they pick away at your wounds until they're bigger and bloodier and more painful than you ever thought possible. Would that help you heal? And I mean really heal. I don't mean just shamed into different behavior for a certain period of time. Anybody could change their behavior for a certain period of time. But if you're not tending to the the pain at the root of it, the weed is just going to keep growing back. 
And in the process, it's going to be even more painful. So that exists in our culture at large. And I think that the only people it protects are the people from whom the shaming is coming from. And so there's work to be done there, I think. But one thing that I feel is critical to note is that for anybody listening who works as a mental health professional, we have to be really careful not to reinforce implicit weight bias and this moralist mentality. Because if we bring that into session with our clients, we can actually do harm. And I've seen instances of this becoming an issue either in the sessions themselves or even in supervision. So in my practicum group supervision years ago, um, I had a, a really confusing experience with my clinical supervisor who is very seasoned. She had years and years of experience and she always had a lot of empathy and, and she was speaking with this empathy and compassion for a client who was addicted to heroin. The therapist, we were doing case presentations. The therapist had presented this case where she was working with a heroin user. And my supervisor was just like, oh my God, you know, this poor guy, he's he suffered so much trauma in his life. And, and, you know, like really like, how can we help him and all of this stuff. And then the next case that was presented was uh, a diabetic client who was struggling to break her compulsion of habitually drinking soda. And my supervisor's demeanor changed entirely. And she had this very cold look on her face. And she said, well, that's stupid. Why would somebody do that to themselves? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. First of all, let's, let's look at, let's look at the basics of it. And, and for sure, I'm not comparing soda to heroin. Let's be clear about that. But soda has two things in it that have been found to be incredibly addictive, sugar and caffeine. So let's first at least make a little bit of room in the conversation for that. But even beyond that, not really sure where the judgment's coming from. Because whenever I work with a client who is addicted to anything, and I use the word addicted liberally in that sense, my question is always, what is, there has to be something unconscious pulling them to this, especially if there's a consequence right? So for this person, their health is the consequence, and yet they were still continuing to do it. So there's there's some dots that we need to connect here. And in those dots, we have to have compassion because, first of all, we're therapists, and that's our job is to have compassion and curiosity. But it's likely a similar story with the heroin user. There's something similar there at the root of that, and yet there wasn't room for that curiosity. Um, I'm, so I'm going to read a quote right now. And after I read the quote, I'll tell you who it's from. But I do just want to have a little bit of a trigger warning for this quote, because it speaks about women's bodies and fat women uh, in a way that can be upsetting for, for some folks. And so um, I think that's why it's powerful. And that's why I'm bringing it into this conversation. So um, handle that how you feel you need to. So here's the quote. I have always been repelled by fat women. I find them disgusting. Their absurd sideways waddle, their absence of body contour, breasts, laps, buttocks, shoulders, jawlines, cheekbones, everything. Everything I like to see in a woman obscured in an avalanche of flesh. And I hate their clothes, the shapeless baggy dresses or worse, the stiff elephantine blue jeans with the barrel thighs. How dare they impose that body on the rest of us? 
The origins of these sorry feelings, I have never thought to inquire. So deep do they run that I never considered them prejudice. So that quote is from a, an existential psychiatrist named Irvin Yalom. And he's not just a psychiatrist who's like, I'm a medical doctor, let me write you some prescriptions. Like he gets into it with his clients. He, he does therapy with his clients and he is typically a very empathetic practitioner. And so he wrote these words in his book, Love's Executioner, which came out a couple years ago, maybe in like 2012. And he's, he's speaking about a client that he names in the book, Betty. And she's a fat woman and she just disgusted him uh, because she tainted his view of what women are supposed to look like as the objects of desire or amusement. Um, and I think it's so interesting. I'm, I'm glad that he owned it in this book. You know, it was years after the fact. And it's actually a really beautiful chapter because she at some point calls him out on it and they get to finally have the honest conversation about what's been present in the room throughout their, I think it may have been like two years of working together where she knew. And she, in fact, herself felt the same way about her own body, which is why it's sort of a bummer that they only came to their honesty at the end of their time working together. Although I would still imagine that it was freeing for both of them in a sense. But so I'm glad that he owned it. And that he's, that he's talking about it, that he's sharing that information. But, but the fact that somebody who is, you know, empathetic for a living and curious about the psychological behaviors of people for a living was still so unconscious to his own prejudice. He even says, so deep do they run that I never considered them prejudice. So if a tenured psychiatrist can bring this into the room, then any of us could really bring this into the room. And I want to just kind of reiterate, especially in a clinical setting, that empathy does not equal collusion. So if you're working with a client, whether they're addicted to heroin, whether they're diabetic and addicted to soda, or anything in between, and you're worried about their safety and their health, don't get confused that you have to be mean to them or dismissive to them or judgmental of them or harsh with them in order to help them. There's the, the health at every size movement, I guess we would maybe call it a movement, which is growing and growing and growing, um, which essentially says that what I've been saying throughout this podcast, which is weight doesn't determine or indicate health. It also says that everybody at every size deserves medical and mental health care with as much dignity as, as a thin person, as anybody. And it's so common that larger bodies go to the doctor where doctors won't listen to symptoms or test for diagnoses because they just attribute everything to the patient's weight. People are being misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because doctors are just focused on weight loss. And I've found out that doctors also receive incentives from insurance companies to mention to an overweight client that they should lose weight. So that's almost like all they want to talk about when you walk into the room. And the Health at Every Size movement also says that BMI is not actually an accurate measure of health either, and then it just perpetuates the weight bias that exists in the medical model. And so as mental health professionals, I think we also need to be doing our own work to recognize how pervasive these biases are because they exist in the infrastructure of our health services, our public services. 
And once you step outside of a manual or a textbook or a theoretical orientation that doesn't help you navigate the complex system of your client's narrative, you might start to realize that you can only take your client as far as you have gone yourself. And so if you're closed off about something, you're not going to be able to lead your clients through their version of that. And so I think one of the more important things to talk about, especially when we're talking about possible glitches in the way your clients consume food or see their bodies, is to address implicit weight bias. And I think what happens is that it's easier to have empathy for somebody outside of you. So, you know, when I think back to my supervisor who, I don't know this for sure, but I would venture to guess that she never had a heroin addiction. Therefore, looking at a heroin addict, she has some distance between them. And maybe that makes it safer for her to care for that person in a way that's not threatening. Whereas she may have, because she's a woman, because she was an older woman and lived through a much tougher time in our culture's history about the way that we looked at women. Uh, She may very well have, I don't know this for sure either, but she may very well have had issues with food and her weight. And so when she looks at somebody else who is struggling with their consumption in that regard, she maybe sees herself. She maybe sees a part of herself that she doesn't like, that she has spent her entire life fighting. And now this person is in front of her, so to speak, being brought up in this case consultation. And she just wants to call him stupid because maybe that's how she felt about herself when she couldn't resist temptation when it came to consumption. A much different knowing in her body than she does with, like with the food than with heroin. In other words, she hasn't, if, if my theory is right, she hasn't succumbed to the temptation of heroin, but she maybe has succumbed to the temptation of soda or, or eating or consuming something that wasn't the best thing for her at the time and that she was disappointed in herself for. I don't know if that makes sense, but <clears throat> I think that it just sort of drives home the point that um, as mental health professionals, we are always needing to be doing our own work to make sure that we're not causing harm to our clients. Because it's not intentional, right? We're not trying to cause harm to our clients. So looking at food as a metaphor, I think, can help us understand what function it serves beneath the surface, where it's no longer something just simply literal, but can now create some other meaning or provide some other resource. So the absence of the feminine is what drives our culture. And so if if our feminine is, is absent, then so is our spiritual nourishment, because that's the quality of the feminine. So if that's also missing, we might be using literal nourishment to give us more than it can. So we might be trying to reconcile or perpetuate the loss of the feminine. So we can reconcile it because we need it. We miss it. Even if we don't actually remember exactly what's missing, we know that something is there. We know the feminine deep down. It's in our ancestral heritage. And a lot of times we hear it calling to us and we call to it. We just don't know how to get there. But we could also be perpetuating the loss of the feminine because we buy into the unconscious messages that it's bad, sinful, weak, criminal, silly, etc. Right? We sacrifice our deepest self in order to survive in the masculine-driven world. Therefore, we have repressed our own feminine so much that we have believed that it shouldn't be there in the first place. And so we may use food to do either of those things. And so if viewing food as a metaphor can help us peek beyond the ego and into the psyche, then I think we can say the same thing about bodies. And Carl Jung believed that body symptomology was a form of messaging from the psyche. And that conscious awareness of these symbols alone 
could promote healing. And Jungian analyst uh, Marion Woodman, she wrote in The Owl Was a Baker's Daughter, quote, to become conscious of the body and its operations was to become conscious of the spirit. The individuation process, therefore, could also be observed by the body. Bearing this in mind, obesity must be understood in terms of the symbol, and that in that understanding lies the treatment and possibility of healing, end quote. So it is believed that the symptoms in our body, and that's not to pathologize larger bodies by calling them symptoms, and even the word obesity is something that we have to be careful of, but that if weight is a symptom for you, it is seen as a deliberate attempt on the unconscious to become conscious. It's psyche asking us to pay attention and ask some questions. There's this amazing quote from King Lear um, that says, quote, we are not ourselves when nature being oppressed commands the mind to suffer the body. And again, keeping in mind this idea that the feminine archetypal energy is repressed in our culture and therefore a trained repression happens within us as well. We are taught to keep her silent. And this silencing may be commanding the mind to suffer the body because it's, it's going against what we need and what we want. So here are some possible takes on what could unconsciously be underlying different body relationships. And keep in mind that purging and restricting are the functions of trying to lessen body size, whereas binging without those compensatory behaviors may be seeking function in weight gain. So somebody who purges might be interpreting the feminine within them as poison, and therefore they need to exorcise it from them. So they may throw up feeling like there's this toxic pit in their gut that they have to get rid of. It could also be a way to strive for perfection and the process of not needing. There's this amazing quote from Maria Hornbacher. She says, we turn skeletons into goddesses and look to them as if they may teach us how not to need. And I think when we look at the, the socialization of women in American culture, it's a sort of, you know, a disappearing act and a like, don't speak up. Your opinions and your needs are not that important. Just stay in the background, be smaller, be less, quiet down a little bit, you know? Uh, so we're told that it's unattractive when we, when we have needs. And so purging in order to maintain a specific weight can be complying with that somehow. And it could just be about the diminishing self and taking up less space, disappearing. Culturally, we perpetuate that narrative because we say the less the feminine exists, the better off we are. So somebody who restricts their food, who is not eating food, uh, they could be facing an avoidance of feminine power through that deprivation, ignoring the body's needs, appetite cravings, just sort of saying, la la la, I don't hear you. I'm not going to give you what you're asking for. Um, and so therefore, therefore weakening the feminine by starving her. And then this also allows the self to remain cut off from intuition and one might not want to be tuned into their intuition if they feel like their intuition is wrong, is seen as wrong in our culture. In other words, I struggled with this for such a long time in my life because my intuition went against cultural norms because my intuition was very strong. I mean, my intuition was the feminine. My feminine was always prevalent within me. But in a culture that says the feminine is stupid, it's all about the masculine, I started to believe that I was the outcast. I was the wrong one. I was missing something. 
And therefore I couldn't trust my intuition because it always kind of got me into trouble. So I wanted to shut off my intuition because it was constantly this voice that was trying to remind me of who I actually was and what was actually important to me. But that always came with a consequence. And it, it was keeping me in this tug of war that I hated. And it was almost easier for me to just blindly comply with a masculine society and forget about my feminine than to keep trying to have a relationship with her and bring her out into the masculine world where she was vulnerable to get hurt. Uh, restriction can also be punishment for badness. It can be a form of self-harm. You know, I feel this pain within me, an emotional pain, but it doesn't make sense. And we don't give value to emotional pain in our culture. It's a sort of, you have to see it to believe it kind of thing. And so what if I punish myself in a physical way where it, start to make, it starts to make sense, where now I have symptoms that I can kind of report, which is that I'm weak and dizzy and lightheaded and my stomach hurts and I'm disappearing before your eyes. Restriction can also come when you are consumed in the process of serving other people. There's no space for serving yourself in that way. So this goes back to the codependent and the martyr thing that I talked about in the last episode and that I'll keep talking about because it's very present in eating disorders that the self comes last because we're bad and unimportant and our only role is to serve other people. And so that's where sometimes a binge comes into play is because all day you're serving other people not eating. Well, then at some point you've got to eat and serve yourself. But that's after everybody else has been fed and everybody else is taken care of. And so in terms of the body, you know, whatever it takes to those compensatory weight loss behaviors, whether it's restriction, um, purging, using diuretics, over-exercising, whatever it is, it's trying to fit in, remain among the attractive, not stand out right? Almost hiding the pathology because you're blending in and meeting physical expectations. So nobody suspects that anything's wrong. And so somebody who binges, for them, food is a metaphor. It might be that they're trying to frantically feed the feminine. They know that something is hungry. We know that something in us is hungry, but we don't know what it is or what it actually needs. There could also be a suffocation that's happening in a, in a similar way of depriving the feminine in order to weaken her, suffocating her in order to you know, muffle her, her calls to action, her, her saying, Hey, remember me? No, no, shush. Right. Just sort of pushing it down, pushing it down. I think it also could be something along what I was talking about in the last episode about Clarissa Pinkola Estes is too good, too demanding dynamic. We try to make up for our fundamental badness out in the world all day by not eating. And then at night we finally need to be able to feed ourselves, to express ourselves, to go from being too good to too demanding to needing too much. And again, that's a natural physiological and psychological response to restriction, to deprivation. It's going to be to overconsume. And then I also talked about this in the last episode too, the illusory totality that Married Winwin talks about. So when relationships are difficult for us and we have a hard time connecting to our own intuition and our own spirit and our own wholeness, our own truth, then we are lacking spirit. And, and inherently by repressing the feminine, we are lacking spirit. And so in order to reach spirit, which is something that we all want to do as human beings, it's something that we all need and crave. Having this relationship with food or any addiction sort of creates what Aldous Huxley actually called a transcendental function, which helps us rise above our human selves and feel like maybe we're lost in connection with something else, that we are creating some sort of eros that we can't have in physical relationships because, or, or human relationships because they're 
they're difficult for us. We don't know how to navigate them in a healthy way. And they always feel a little sickening. So, but we've got to connect to something. So getting in this, this state of a binge, which is this all consuming process, it creates this illusion of godliness that we can't get anywhere else. There's also this idea of like, this is what I deserve. I don't have any advocacy for myself. I don't know how to take care of myself because I was always taking care of everybody else. And so I just deserve to kind of feel sick all the time or push my body to its limits with food that's not healthy for me. That's not good for me because uh, this is just this is my lot in life. This is where I'm supposed to sort of be. The restricting and binging cycle can also be fulfilling resentment for having to, quote, play masculine, you know, think about it in that sort of way, and repress our own feminine during the day. So we might be starving the masculine during the daytime, during that restrictive period where we're out in the world having to play masculine, we're starving him, maybe, and then overfeeding the feminine at night during the binge. There's no clear answer. There's no right or wrong answer. This is all just an exploration right? When we look at food as a metaphor, we can't, we, we have to understand that we are taking a feminine approach to it inherently because it's not linear. And therefore, there's not going to be a right or wrong. There's no binary in the feminine. That's a masculine trait, right? The masculine trait says it's one or the other. The masculine trait gives us multiple choice and says pick the right answer. The feminine says, well, I don't know. We're talking about something that's metaphorical, mythological, unconscious. It could be anything, Everybody's truth is going to be a little bit different based on their own relationship to their own feminine and masculine or to the culture's feminine and masculine, what modeling they had growing up in their lives, what messaging they absorbed during, you know, fundamental developmental phases of their lives. It's going to manifest in different ways. I think in terms of gaining weight, some of the unconscious functioning there could be an act of rebellion against a culture who tries to enforce messaging that worth comes from thinness. You know, well, I challenge that. I'm going to live in a fatter body and I'm still going to be worthy of something. I'm not going to comply. I'm not going to contort myself to who you think that I should be. It could also be an act of rebellion against a mother who in her own repression of the feminine tried to enforce that same ideology, the whole like, you'd be so pretty if only you lost a little weight, right? For a daughter, especially with a mother like that, gaining weight could be a big F you to her to say, you tried to make me small my whole life. You made me feel like I was just a couple of degrees away from actually being worthy, but that in order to get there, I had to be thinner. That I am inherently doing something wrong by being fat. And ouch, no thank you. There's also father complex stuff because fathers, a lot of times unconsciously project onto their daughters that they are supposed to be perfect this little angel kind of thing right and so that can manifest in food and body relationships too in terms of rebellion or i am trying to be perfect and this is the result of that i am now in a swirl of disorder because you tried to make me perfect and that is an unattainable goal gaining weight can also be an act of self-protection against this culture of the predatory male and the victim blaming that accompanies sexual assault. I talked about this a lot in the first episode um, and my experiences growing up in New York and constantly hearing these news reports about women who were jogging through Central Park and got raped or mugged. And the whole idea was, well, why is she out at night jogging alone in the park? Okay. So not only now is it like there's this pervasive 
rape culture, but now we're we're shaming the victims on top of it. We're not holding men accountable. Why are they raping? We're holding women accountable for their own rape, saying you shouldn't be outside by yourself at night. So to gain weight is to say, I'm going to hide in plain sight because if I can make myself not be attractive to a man, then my likelihood of being attacked or assaulted or harassed goes down. And that's not always true because rape is not just about whether or not somebody's attracted to somebody. It's about violence. It's about control. It's about domination, right? But it does. Gaining weight and not, or, or maybe not gaining weight, but whatever the thing is that takes you out of what society has deemed to be attractive, it can actually take some eyes off of you. Because to be a woman, you automatically have a lot of eyes on you at all times. You know, Dave Chappelle actually uh, has this great bit in one of his, I can't remember, see, I'm going to be foggy on the details, but I think it's worth mentioning. One of the four stand-ups that he released to Netflix in 2017, he has this bit about uh, he was carrying money. He had a lot of money in a backpack that he was, you know, trying to get through a city in or with this money and he just felt like everybody's eyes were on him and that he knew that he had something that everybody wanted and how unsafe that inherently made him feel and then he thought and so i would imagine that that's what it's like to have a vagina all the time because you are walking around with something that people want and people think that they can get if they just say the right thing or look at you the right way or whatever right and so to gain weight is to try to disappear from that and i'm not saying that it always works But again, these are unconscious survival mechanisms that say, well, this may be my best option in order to keep myself safe. And then I think there's also protection from other people and other relationships. So I sometimes um, will say that, like, I built a moat around myself because I didn't know how to get close to people. And so I physically embodied that and I put distance between me and other people because relationships were always toxic and confusing and they did not feel good for me. I think that there can also be like an inherent, I guess, consequence, maybe not necessarily a function of gaining weight. But, you know, for me, like anger, I was never allowed to feel anger. It was always unproductive. It was scary. It was something that I hadn't earned the right to feel. If if somebody made me angry, my mentality was it was because I did something to warrant being treated that way. And that was the mythology of my life. So whenever natural anger would come up, and I wasn't able to put it where it belonged, I would put that on myself. It would go inward and made me angry at myself, at my skin, at my bones, at my blood, at my breath, at my hair, at my teeth. It manifested in my soma and my psyche. And then I needed to punish myself for that. And then in the afterglow of a binge, that actually allows me to be explicitly mad at myself for something that actually made sense, something that I could quantify because I was already angry at myself, but it wasn't that I was angry at myself. It was that I was angry at somebody else. I just wasn't allowed to be angry at that person. So now I'm holding this anger toward me, but I don't know why. Why am I so mad at myself? I don't know why. Well, let me binge. Let me do the thing that I wish that I hadn't done so that I can actually be angry at myself for something that makes sense. Um, I think there's also this idea of like body hoarding, like as though, you know, you see hoarders on like TLC or whatever channel they have those shows where people are just constantly stuffing things into a, into a space, right? Um, there's a degree of not being able to let something go. 
not being able to facilitate change and evolution in, in a hoarding process. And it just makes me think of when I was writing my thesis, my therapist gave me this very strange look when I said something, and I think it was the way that I said it, because I was sort of obsessed with it, but it was like, I need to figure this out. I need to figure out where this eating disorder came from for me and how to fix it. And his whole thing was just kind of like, you don't need to figure it out, like in a cognitive way, you just need to move through it. You need to almost drop out of your head because it didn't create in your head. So, so move into it in a more psychic kind of way, and then you can move through it. But the idea of moving through it and getting rid of it, you know, being free of my eating disorder before I figured it out, that seemed really scary to me. So is this idea that like, I have to hold on to my eating disorder so that I can truly understand it. And then maybe I'll be willing to let it go. And I think the problem with that is that when we keep telling the same story over and over again, for the sake of trying to figure something out, all we do by retelling that story is rewrite future chapters in which we're playing the same role. And we have the same ending. And we can't ever imagine a different path for our character. So when we want to capture something or figure it out or make sense of it or hold on to it because it feels familiar or comfortable or safe, we're hoarding. We're keeping these things locked in our bodies with nowhere else to go. And food can become almost the symbol of that. I also think that, you know, I held within my body the shame of other people. Going back to that idea of codependency and martyrdom. You know, I recently had this image. I was doing a meditation and I had this image where I was standing in front of another person. And there were these two tubes that connected to us. One on either side of our body. So from my right side, a tube connected to their left side. And from my left side, a tube connected to their right side. And on the one on my left side, it was pumping good things to them. Because as a codependent person, I believe that I am responsible for the feelings and behaviors of other people. So I, I want to intercept. I want to try to try to help uh, tension from brewing or or negativity from from coming up. And so I'm trying to transmit positive things to them. But as a result of that, on the on the in the other tube, I'm kind of getting a lot of their negativity, a lot of their shame, a lot of their anger, a lot of their pain, um, because that's me trying to control a situation. So another way to kind of see this is that, you know, when I think back to my earlier days when my dad still lived with us in the house and it was me, my sister, my mom and my dad, there would be a lot of tension. There was there was often a lot of tension between my parents. And but then my sister and I would have our own ways of reacting to that tension, which sometimes made the tension worse. And I was the last person to enter that family system. I was the youngest child. And I had this unique perspective of something that was already established between the three of them. And I will say that as a, a highly sensitive person, uh, I'm very reactive to tension. I get almost physically ill when I anticipate tension or am experiencing, you know, arguments that I'm not even in. I'm on the outside of. Um, and, and these arguments that would sometimes come up between my parents, they were so illogical and unreasonable and they could last forever because nobody would ever win. It wasn't about the thing that they were fighting about. It was the fact that my parents had so much resentment toward each other and they just took every opportunity to let the other person know that. And so it felt like everything had to be an argument. It, it couldn't be a conversation unless somebody put the other person down or somebody had to defend themselves or whatever, right? So I developed these ninja skills, which I think is exactly why I became a therapist. Unknowingly, I was doing this for my own comfort and my own safety. And I'm not saying that I was actually good at it, 
or that I was effective or made any impact. But my natural reaction to that was to start to run interference. I would try to quell the tension and I would never blatantly stop a fight. But instead, I would notice little things like, okay, my mother just made a face and my dad saw it, which means he's going to say something in response. Now dinner's going to be ruined. So let me try to figure out a way to slow this down. Let me distract him. Let me lighten the mood. And so in that process of trying to do that, I started to anticipate the needs of other people. And I felt that it was my responsibility to serve those needs so that it would lessen the anxiety in the house, including the risk of there being a fight. And then I would certainly be more comfortable, but everybody would be happy. And I got really good at reading people and giving them exactly what they wanted. And there's, there's nothing healthy about that because I don't exist there. But it also means that I've put myself in charge of other people's behaviors. Now, I'm responsible for making sure my dad doesn't make the comment that's going to spark the fight or that when my mom rolls her eyes, she does it out of my dad's line of sight so that he doesn't see it. Little things, but little impossible things that can create an immense amount of stress within me. And oftentimes, you know, there's anger and shame and sadness underneath the behaviors that I was trying to intercept. And so I acted as some sort of a conduit for those emotions and I absorbed them myself. So the resentment that my parents were feeling amongst each other, I started to absorb because I was trying to get in between that. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but my whole body is lit up right now, which means that it makes sense to me. <laughs> and there's a reality there. Um, and I've got enough of my own shame. I don't need other people's flooding my body, but that's what sort of happened. If I, if I sort of see those tubes as the kind of physical representation of me trying to input distraction and positivity and lighten the mood, but also taking the shame and the anger and the resentment into my own body, then my body just becomes a storage closet of negativity. And so weight becomes the, almost the representation of that. I'm going to balloon up because there's too much negativity inside of my body. But also food becomes a way to quell that, to shove that all down so that I don't have to deal with it, burying other people's and my own shame within my body. And then there's also this idea of like gaining weight may also serve the saboteur archetype, which perpetuates the cycle of self-destruction or exacerbating our limitations, hiding behind ourselves, staying further away from people, staying further away from what we can connect to, what we have potential for, keeping ourselves stuck, right? There's a lot of archetypal energy that comes through the way that we eat. And so, yeah, those are just, <laughs> those are just some thoughts that I had about um, deliteralizing our relationships with food and body, taking it out of, if, you, if you're a mental health professional, taking it out of merely a clinical diagnostic perspective, because I will say that because binge eating disorder is a newer addition to the DSM, I think that there's some pieces of it that are lacking in terms of the di diagnostic criteria. But even whether or not it was all inclusive, I think we also want to look at our clients and ourselves beyond just a pathological lens and into this space where it's like, we can move through some of these things. We don't have to figure them out. And we can grant ourselves and our clients permission to let these things go when they feel safe to, because we can find other places to use that energy. And that alone can be scary. My therapist once asked me, you know, if you were not caught up in this eating disorder, you would have a lot of energy to, to use on other things. What would you use it in? And I got really nervous when he asked me that question because I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> this has been a long time. This has been, you know, almost 20 years of my life. No, it has been 20 years of my life 
forgot how old I was for a second. It's been 20 years of my life that I have spent almost all of my energy on how I look and what I eat. And it's been a negative experience. So what would I do with all of that energy? These are the things that we want to start asking ourselves, not where this came from and what we can do about it. I mean, those are important questions to gain an understanding. But the next questions that we want to ask are, well, then how do we how do we transform this energy? What kind of alchemical process can we really benefit here to move through this and turn this into something that we're happier about, that we feel more empowered by? And I think the portal is to deliteralize it, is to look at it through metaphor and be curious about it. And then maybe the behaviors and the outcomes will change in response. Well, thank you for joining me here on the Feed the Feminine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to explore more, you can subscribe for updates on upcoming episodes, as well as head over to thehungryfeminine.com, where you can join the mailing list to stay in the loop. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Hungry Feminine. Thanks again for being here. See you next time.